Hey everybody, welcome back to the Four Star Podcast. Today is the first of November, so welcome to November. Uh, we're in our <clears throat> headquarters city today in Chicago, and uh, we've had snow now for two days in Chicago. So uh, I put out a few things on Facebook, and it's been pretty cold. Ouch. Uh, normally we don't get snow this early, so everyone assumes, well, now it's time for a, a hard, hard, cold winter, but uh, it probably will just be a warmer winter because we said that. <laughs> Hopefully. That, that's uh, <laughs> Who knows? The, the reverse methodology, right? Who knows? Anyway, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Brian Castle, I'm here with Mr. Christopher Reardon. Christopher Reardon, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Brian. Glad to be here. And everybody knows Chris. For those of you who have been with us before, Chris is our four-star director of development. He is, I call him, the master of all things portfolio, trading reports, still loves his Cleveland Indians. He's the caretaker of the new Golden Doodle puppy, Hudson. We have Hudson updates regularly. And Chris was raised near the Factory of Sadness, now the home of the resurgent, but not so resurgent, sure. Cleveland Browns this year, right, Chris? Yep, yeah, Browns and Bears uh, both uh, had a lot of uh, a lot of optimism, and uh, you just that's why they play the game, right? <laughs> Ain't happening. That's why they play the games. And I'm Brian Castle, your founder of and CEO of Four Star Wealth Advisors here in Chicago. I'm an Eagle Scout. I'm a National Boy Scout Foundation trustee, a charter advisor and a philanthropy advisor to CEOs and insiders. Chief Investment Officer of the firm and dad to uh, Evan and Quinn, the two amazing young men, and my wonderful wife, Tripti, uh, and also a fan of the resurgent, but not so resurgent, <laughs> Chicago Bears. So um, anyway, Chris, welcome to the podcast. Uh, welcome, everybody. Let's get right into it. <clears throat> There's a lot happening. Let's go through uh, the markets since our last podcast and what's happening and what our position is. Chris, do you want to... Give a review? Yeah, no, markets, um, it's been, what, I think a couple weeks now since our last podcast. Um, you know, markets have been relatively stable, up, upward movements with the markets. Um, you know, our positioning, getting a little bit more on offense. Um, the one kind of defensive positioning we did have was in the international front, which we're starting to see trends peak up a little bit. Um, so we're starting to take a little bit of that, get a little bit offensive with, uh, with that trend that's moving in the right direction. Uh, but from an asset allocation front, for the most part, for the last two months, it's been pretty stale, pretty frozen. You pretty know? steady. Right. Yeah, yeah. Not, not much movement there. So uh, number one, still domestic equities, which is clear cut uh, the number one leader. It's got, I think, almost a 100 point lead, uh, which is pretty significant over the tally second. Tally score, tally score. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Over the uh, second, uh, the second asset class. Next, we have international equities, um, which is in the second spot, and fixed income in the third spot. Uh, both those are separated by about 15 tally points, mm -hmm. like Brian had mm -hmm. mentioned, um, about 15 points. So the trend before we kind of went to this steady you know, overall trend for the last two months was fixed income moving upwards, international moving downwards. We've seen that kind of stop for the last two mm -hmm. months. Um, so we're hoping to see international possibly start moving back upwards if the trends continue, if what we're kind of starting to see continues. Um, but you know, if it's, if not, we could see fixed income moving to that second spot. And the relationship between the asset classes, usually in a slow, slowly rising environment, often does stay steady. We yep. saw it all through the last bull run in mm -hmm. 2017 and then to early 2018, where once the, uh, the leadership was established, it stayed that way for a yep. long period of time. So we might see that that could be a sign we're getting ready for a move upward. Yep. Yeah. Usually, uh, a lot of movement signals volatility. 
Um, doesn't have to necessarily mean volatility in the equity markets. It could be commodities. You know, we could see oil, you know, going haywire, and that could drive the commodities. Uh, you know, so it's but volatility of some kind usually drives it. So when it is steady like that, it usually means things are. You know, the VIX and, and volatility is down overall. Yeah. So that's good to see. And we keep now seeing new highs. In fact, today, November 1st, as we tape this at about 1030 in the morning, uh, we're seeing new highs on the markets again. Mm-hmm. So uh, usually when you're in a in a market that's near new highs, then every day there's a new high. It's kind of a ho-hum thing. Mm-hmm. But then they start tallying up, well, 113 10 new high days and 114 new high days. Um, the fact that each each new update is a new high isn't materially significant, but it sounds good, mm-hmm. right? Um, but we so we're probably hitting a new high again today, right? Yeah, so. yeah, no, I mean new highs. Um, a lot of that's off of news we'll get into after this segment, but um, so just to round out, I guess just to reiterate, uh, number one right now as we see is domestic equities followed by international equities, then fixed income, then commodities cash and currencies kind of rounds out our six asset classes as we rank them. And that's kind of the normal distribution when we're in a rising uh, growth economy, when the markets are rising. So uh, it's pretty consistent with what we've seen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, throughout, what, 17, most of 18, pretty much, or all of 18, it's been, you know, one domestic, two international. I mean, that's pretty bullish. And all of our indicators are positive. Correct. So we are officially, if you do like a football, we keep talking about football, offense versus defense, where the offensive team is on the field, Mm -hmm. and we're looking and hoping, expecting to make gains. Uh, The price movements give us high probability that that's what's going to happen. So hopefully we continue to see the markets rising from here, and we'll watch it very, very closely, as we always do. Yeah, exactly. So this week we had a lot of economic news. Yeah. Uh, So some of the numbers that came out this week, uh, the Q uh, third quarter, I should say GDP numbers came in. It was at 1.9 percent, which was stronger than expected. Uh, It was down 1.1 percent from the second quarter, but people were expecting a much larger retraction. So um, overall, it was a pretty, um, pretty good number. Um, I think the highlight of it, um, Brian and I were speaking about this before, was consumer spending. And the Federal Reserve actually spoke about this. Um, the highlight was consumer spending, and which came in at 2.9% on the third quarter. And that was up almost was up almost 2.5% from the year prior. Um, so a big driver there. And we've talked about this for those of you that kind of listen consistently on podcasts. A big driver of this economy and the domestic market and kind of shrugging off all this trade war, all this stuff going on, has been the, the consumer. The consumer spending has been amazing within the U.S. market. And, um, you know, as long as that continues to drive forward, uh, you know, we should hopefully continue to see at least a stabilization of the GDP number. Absolutely. Well, and that GDP number is really interesting because everyone is, people are talking it might go below 1%. For the quarter and of course this is the first shot at it so there's going to be two more revisions over the next two months on this gdp number for the third quarter but um everyone expected the gdp number to be closer to the to the absolute figure one maybe a little below it maybe a little bit bit above it the fact that it came at 1.9 is pretty strong most of the expectations were were one and a half like the official gdp mm-hmm. now estimate and everything so uh that's consistent with what our friends at the Fed have been saying that there's a structural change in the economy due to the regulations that have been removed in the economy from the Trump administration, as well as the recent tax cut. 
uh, where they freed up a lot of a lot of the sand that was in the gears of the economy prior uh, has been removed and things are just moving easier. Money's flowing easier. So the fact that every time we've had a lowered expectation and the market's beaten, the, the, the GDP has beaten the lowered expectation is a sign that maybe that is in fact true, that mm -hmm. the economy is just structurally in a better position. Um, Dave Altig, the chief of research of the Atlanta Fed, who we communicate with fairly regularly, had said now at our July meeting, he said now the, the basic growth for the economy is about 2%. Uh, and when it was previously closer to 1%, uh, but now all the structural changes have caused the base to be higher. Then when we're at a 3 or 4% quarter, companies are building up inventories and a lot of business activity. When we go below 2 then there's a contraction, and we've seen a contraction in manufacturing mm -hmm. numbers and all that. Yep. And those uh, listeners to the podcast over the summer have heard that, mm -hmm. uh, certainly in September and, and, and in October. Uh, so now, uh, but you know, if, if this is the bottom end of a kind of little move backward, and it's still only 1.9, that's actually a good sign. Yep. Yeah, and a lot of that uh, contraction, like Brian said, the biggest number that's always <coughs> highlighted is like business investment and then manufacturing. And a lot of that people link to the trade war, trade negotiations going on. Um, you know, so what we've seen on that front, as everyone kind of sees pretty much daily on the news, is it seems like we're getting closer to a deal. It's kind of a, a two-step forward, one-step back situation, but it's kind of getting closer and edging closer and closer. And uh, if that can get resolved, uh, we could see, you know, a lift. You know, maybe it will kind of bounce back, maybe to two and a half or, you know, maybe closer to 3%. Um, we're seeing right now, you know, there are some um, kind of, uh, not problems, but we're seeing some uh, uh, problems, I guess, for for um, companies with with spending. They don't want to necessarily overspend, and you're going to have you have this trade ongoing trade negotiations occurring. Then you also have a presidential presidential election uh, coming up next year, mm -hmm. and and as good as deregulation has been for the economy, you know, with that unknown variable of who's going to be in the White House and which party is going to have control and and what kind of each party has different, you know, methodologies behind regulation and deregulation. Um, there's a lot of unknown variables there. So, you know, as company owners and CEOs, you know, there's a lot of hesitancy to go overspending with expectations of possible further deregulation in the environment. Absolutely. Well, and, and uh, now you'll see a lot of folks talk about their view of the growth of the economy. And, you know, every, every president is certainly going to talk up their economy, right? Because they want to be responsible for a good economy. President Obama talked up his economy. Uh, president Trump, obviously, is a big braggart, and he tells about how, how good his economy is. Um, and and uh, under President Obama, the 2014 year was still the highest growth year of this decade, over, up over 4%. Uh, Trump's had strong growth, but not quite as strong, uh, but it is recovering and it is moving in the right direction. Uh, so, you know, but you'll hear discussions of now that we have had a 1.9% quarter. Uh, I saw an article where someone said, well, the last 12 months growth has been slower than the Obama period. And so they were taking the strongest growth period under Obama and now this past 12 month period. So um, I remember back in uh, 
in University of Illinois, Chicago, way back in the 70s, I took a class, and there's a famous book called How to Lie with Statistics. And so anybody that wants to stretch and squeeze graphs to make it look better, uh, you know, can, right? So, so now the negative naysayers or the anti-Trumpers are saying, well, now the growth isn't that strong. And then uh, the, the positive you know, guys are saying, well, it's still the strongest economy ever. And here I'm saying that even the, the pullback at 1.9% is stronger than expected. So um, we just want to talk about the, what the numbers are. Uh, we're, you know, just like folks are being negative because they were politically against President Obama uh, back during his term, we see no purpose in that. We also see no purpose in being negative about the economy now because people don't like the current president. We're just about the numbers. The numbers do look good. Mm -hmm. um, and the base growth level of the economy is slightly higher because of the structural changes in the economy. So we're going to talk a little bit about structure in a, in a few minutes, but um, that's what we're all about. And we want to see growth. The growth leads to jobs. Job leads to continuing taxation, helps governments reduce deficits and all those things. So it's all really good. And Chris, you mentioned the jobs rate. So we had 128,000 jobs, but if you adjust it for the GM strike, uh, the number is over 300,000 in jobs. Uh, so the rate of, of, of unemployment went up a little bit, but that's actually the strong uh, the sign of a strong recovering economy as more people raise their hand and say, mm -hmm. I want a job. So initially, if we're having a period of time where jobs are going to continue to grow, that we might see the, the unemployment rate go up as more people raise their hand and get into the, into the workforce. But we've had 20 months in a row of unemployment lower than 4% which is pretty amazing when you think about it. Well, in the September, uh, with that uh, info, with the, uh, the 128,000 jobs, uh, they revised the September jobs report number up to 180,000. So, um, you know, and I think that's the backbone behind the uh, consumer spending. You know, when mm -hmm. consumers are, unemployment's low, consumers are in, have jobs, they feel that security, they're willing to go out and purchase a car or they're willing to go out and spend a little extra for Christmas and stuff. And that's going to just drive, or the holidays in general, and that's just going to drive, you know, drive the economy and hopefully keep us chugging along. I mean, they, they've, I think people were expecting a lot worse as far as the economy. And I think the consumer, the American consumer has, uh, you know, been that, that one unknown variable that people weren't expecting. Mm, absolutely. So, which has been good. Well, and then we have spoken before about tariffs and uh, the possible deal with China and all those things. And tariffs have been structurally helping the American economy. There's certainly disruption to those tariffs. Certain industries have, have uh, you know, been tariffed and needed to be subsidized and that kind of thing. But the tariffs have been helping the predatory pricing that's caused by other countries subsidizing their industries to price below market and take market share from America. We saw it in textiles in the 70s. We saw it in steel in the 70s and the 80s. So now we're building steel plants in America. We're building industries that were long gone here uh, for many years. So the tariffs are really helping those industries recover and more empl employment growth. So that's another reason why structural unemployment has been been low. Well, and, and to that degree, the latest uh, tariff news was out of, uh, what, uh, Airbus. Airbus mm -hmm. and Boeing. Uh, and obviously, Boeing's got their own problems going sure on. Do, but, yeah. um, you know, the thing that people didn't realize is Airbus was being subsidized by the EU to compete. And, you know, you know, everything aside, you know, America doesn't necessarily, we're, we're a capitalistic environment. So we want to, you know, make competition. We want all that. So, 
you know, when you have, you know, the competition for Boeing, the main competition being Airbus, I think together they're like 98% of the right. airplane market. When you have one of those counterparties being subsidized by the government, driving the price of the airplanes down, all that, um, you know, it's going to kill off Boeing. And then, you know, what, you're going to have a single one and then they can gouge pricing. So um, th there's definitely a methodology behind it. And it's, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. That's for sure. While the world, while the American economy has been fundamentally restructuring itself to, to afford uh, stronger growth, we've talked about this in previous podcasts as well. We continue to see the worldwide economy slower, and you know we've seen to get America out of the ditch of 2008 and 2009. We did quantitative easings. Uh, we um, we basically flooded the zone with cash to try and force inflation. It didn't work as well as it could have, but it did work. It kept us from going into deflation. Uh, the worst thing you could have is deflation, because if you know that the price of whatever you're, you're trying to buy will be cheaper in a month, you're gonna stop and you're gonna wait, and cheaper in another month, you're gonna stop and you're gonna wait. So deflation is what every economic central bank wants to avoid, because that just kills the economy. So um, if you have all those structural problems in the economy. You can throw cash at an economy through quantitative easings and lowering reserve requirements, all the things that central banks do, and it still won't be enough if you've got heavy regulation, high cost, high pensions, all these things that are slowing things down. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're seeing around the world. Uh, the European Union, for example, still has not restructured much of anything at all. And part of it has to do with the way they're structured. They can't seem to make decisions. We've got uh, the UK wanting to leave and they're trying to structure a Brexit. They got another, they got another extension. Yep. Although France voted against it, they got another extension. Uh, you know, so um, those are the hard things that need to be done. Uh, they're harder to do than to tax people or issue quantitative easings because it takes governments in general to, to vote on these things. So to the extent that the European Union and other countries in Asia restructure their economy so they can grow again, well, then they'll do better. But until they do, though, they're going to lag America because America's going through the restructuring. Has it been easy? No, it's been painful. Um, and But that's the way it has to be. Yeah, and you, you're seeing some of the kind of inclinations of, you know, some parties in Europe maybe getting a little bit more popularity with that restructuring. I know in Germany uh, is one of them. So it's kind of, they're starting to kind of see it a little bit. It's getting the inklings of it. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll have to see where, what ends up with it. We've talked in the past about the European Union as a whole, um, you know, whether it'll even be around in 10 years from now. There, there's a lot of challenges they're going to have to face. Yeah, there um, are those that think the European Union will not survive this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, there's good cases to be made, um, you know, for both sides. I mean, there's definitely um, <clears throat> drawbacks to tying a bunch of separate economies together, yeah. especially to a single currency. So back to the U.S., there's one other statistic we saw that we thought was important to mention, that real estate prices that have been waning for a while, and, and just again, to full disclosure, uh, the American real estate market finally bottomed somewhere around 2012, and ever since then, we've seen a seven-year bull, bull run in real estate prices until about a year ago. So the fact that we have a one-year pullback in real estate prices after such a long advance is not surprising. Nope. But when you're going through that one year, people get nervous, people get upset. I know the real estate brokerages around the country have seen slowing sales because pricings were slower. Well, the good news is that last month, real estate prices edged higher for the first time in 16 months. 
So that could be a sign that all the forces that were the, you know, the headwinds getting in the middle of the real estate pricing market might have cleared now. Mm-hmm. And maybe, you know, one month isn't a trend for sure. But if we're seeing prices move up one month now, maybe we'll see a couple months together. Maybe real estate prices will recover again. Well, and that's uh, um, another repercussion of, I, don't, I do not know if we mentioned this, but obviously on Wednesday this week, the Federal Reserve uh, did lower the rate by 25 basis points again, mm-hmm, right. uh, dropped the Fed funds. That rate. certainly gooses the real estate prices. Yeah, so, so some of that's going to definitely help stabilize that market. Um, you know, and, and we talked about this, um, for those of you that have listened about a year ago, when it was an opposite trend, we were going to a tightening environment. Um, we kind of saw the exact opposite. We saw it slowly starting to, to, to kind of cut it off, which is to be expected. I mean, this is, um, you know, expectations there. But uh, I think it also lends to the fact that consumer spending, all that. I mean, the, the consumer, I, the consumer's mentality now is kind of they, they have jobs are good. They're, they're in a safe environment right now. I think, um, you know, business investment has been sluggish, but... You know, I think as far as job security right now, it's 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 we're in a pretty good place. We are. There's some other unique things happening in the market, and Chris, you were talking to me earlier about coffee prices. Oh yeah, yeah. So this is uh, another interesting uh, for uh, and most of our listeners, I'm assuming, drink coffee or like to to indulge in going to the <clears> Starbucks, <throat> you know, every morning. Um, so coffee prices over the next six months, six to months to a year, you could see for specialty coffees. Um, you know, the, I think Sumatra, you know, you see all these like, you know, very exotic coffees when you go into Starbucks now or really any grocery store. Um, we could see that skyrocket, that price. Uh, what we're having is you have uh, these large plant coffee plantations down in uh, South America, which is where Arabica coffee is from, which is kind of the premium coffee bean. Uh, these large plantations are driving down the price per pound for coffee. You know, if you want to compare it to like a Walmart. They're driving down that price. And then you have these smaller, more boutique coffee plantations. Uh, and what's happening is they're unable to make a profit off of the lower price that they're selling it for. Uh, the, I think the threshold's $1.50 per pound. So once they get underneath that $1.50 figure, they're losing money. Uh, so what we're starting to see, the trend now in South America, is uh, those smaller boutique farmers are pivoting to... Um, whether it's bananas or you know they're 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 agricultural they're they're pig, they're pig, they're uh, pivoting to um, you know another agricultural product so um, what we could see is we're going to see less a less diversity uh, within there for you know specialty coffee Coffees, beans yeah. and stuff and then we're also going to see that premium coffee price possibly you know start moving upwards price wise so that could reflect Starbucks that premium cup of coffee could have costing a little bit more. Right. So it'll be interesting to see. It's it's one of those things that, you know, kind of in the large trade negotiations and battles kind of gets kind of left by the wayside. <laughs> you know, one of the other th- interesting things that we saw just to mention is just this morning, Google acquired uh, Fitbit. Uh, so uh, I'm sure some of the listeners of the podcast own a Fitbit and they walk and they and they uh, uh, test all their all their steps. And I've had uh, all kinds of different Fitbits because I tend to lose them uh, over the years. But, uh, but Fitbit's been a really interesting thing where, uh, you know, while people would check their fitness uh, because Fitbit has been such a, a, a big thing nationally. Uh, it's become kind of a thing like you say you're going to go get a soft drink, you say you're going to get a Coke. 
old people will say, let's, you know, let's check our Fitbit as a generic term for checking uh, the number of steps that we have. And I, in fact, uh, I talk with our family about, hey, let's go get some Fitbit, meaning let's go walk, you know, go take a walk uh, in the morning. Anyway, uh, so we talked uh, at the expense of some of the, some of the recent IPOs. We had a discussion about IPO uh, pricing and how bad, and people were saying, oh, IPOs are terrible, and it's been a bad run for IPOs. But it really wasn't the IPO structure. IPOs, uh, that's a neutral thing. It's the, it's the quality of the IPOs. So we were talking about Lyft and others that didn't do as well. Well, you know, here's one that did do well. So Fitbit came public, did reasonably well, and to the point that they continued to grow and do well, and then Google decided to acquire them. So uh, just as like a close, you know, closing the loop on the IPO discussion, there have been a lot of bad IPOs, but it's not the IPO structure's fault, it's the company's fault. In this case, Fitbit did well and it was acquired by Google. So let's hear it for Fitbit. Congratulations. Yeah. So, And then, Chris, you talked about how Fitbit and Google together uh, could be quite a juggernaut against Apple yep. and the smartwatch, right? Yeah, so you know, if you rewind back five years or so, you didn't have the Apple Watch. Fitbit was really the big player in the kind of, you had the health bracelet. You know, you almost had kind of the, they were kind of moving towards that smartwatch uh, look with them. Um, but then Apple came in, Apple's a big disruptor, and they kind of came out with their Apple Watch, and, and that has a lot of health, uh, similar, you know, step counting, a lot of those health benefits built into that Apple Watch, but obviously the benefit of being built around the Apple ecosystem, so you have, you know, texting, phone calls, all that. So, you know, I think that, you know, looking at that, Fitbit definitely had some limitations, and I think now Google saw that, and they're trying to compete with Apple, you know, as one of their main competitors, and Google does have their app, their Google smartwatches. You know, it's a smart purchase by Google because now they can, you know, incorporate Fitbit's health technology into their Google watches and, you know, have a very, you know, comparative product uh, for competition-wise versus Apple. So it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I think the big benefit, this is competition, the big benefit is the consumer. Hopefully we'll see prices lower a little bit. Mm -hmm. You know, we'll see innovations. I mean, it's it's been incredible having um, Apple. Apple has that one um, where you can get a, um, I think it's an EKG or ECG, where you can see if your heart's in rhythm. EKG, yeah. Yeah, you can see if your heart's in rhythm, and uh, you know that's that's incredible for you know people that have you know problems or have uh, you know heart issues to be able to see are they in rhythm now because if you if you didn't have that watch before you're just kind of hoping you know now if you're you know feeling a little you know unknown variable there you can just kind of do the test and know you're in rhythm and you're all good to go so I see uh, it's incredible I seem to remember a commercial better life through technology right that yeah basically is. and that's one you know now you don't have to go get tested all the time you can just all right I you know go to the doctor I'm in rhythm I'm good to go yes so it's incredible it really that's is. great well, good. Well, um, I did want to make some comments as we uh, come near in the end of the podcast here today. Uh, so while we're uh, seeing an, a, a resurgent American economy, uh, you know, we had a strong growth period. Uh, then we had a little slowdown this summer. Maybe it looks like it's recovering as we get into the next quarter. And a lot of the estimates are going higher. We still see it's a national economy. Uh, we talked about real estate and real estate prices in aggregate are growing again this past month, but there's always little pockets where it's not happening, right? And that's, uh, they always say real estate is all a local market for sure. I know the New York real estate market has been really difficult. High-end condos have gone down 20, 30% in value and that kind of thing. So, um, so we might still see some negative pockets there. But when you look at the overall gross domestic product, 
uh, job, you know, uh, un unemployment numbers being really low, productivity being high, all those positive things. Yet, because there's 50 states in America, not every state's participating as well as they could. And uh, some of the states that are not participating as well are California, uh, our home state of Illinois, our headquarters here in Chicago. Uh, we also see the problems in New York, some of the other high tax, uh, you know, high, um, you know, high regulation states. And so uh, we took a look at that. You know, um, one of my uh, sons, my youngest son, Quinn, is a master's student at University of Illinois Chicago. He's written a number of really interesting articles, and one of them is the, the population trends around, around uh, the Chicago market. Uh, Chicago has been losing population over the years, um, and, and most people cite higher taxes, higher real estate taxes. Now they're talking about putting a, a tax on, on spending, on income, uh, more, you know, just all kinds of taxes are coming in to pay for all the obligations that have been put on. Uh, Quinn, my son, had written an article in a, in a publication called Real Deal that talks about uh, the fastest growing suburbs around the Chicagoland area, and two of them are over in Indiana, not, not in Illinois. Uh, St. John, Indiana, 22% growth between 2010 and 2018. Uh, Cedar Lake and Crown Point, Indiana, up over 10%. Uh, so we're seeing a lot of growth, but it's not in Illinois. There are some growth suburbs, but most of the state of Illinois and the city of Chicago are showing out migration. So this state is not participating as much in the boom of America. Likewise, uh, everyone knows that Four Star, everyone who's been listening to the podcast, knows that Four Star made an acquisition earlier this year, and we acquired the, pra the uh, practices of, of uh, some advisors in Reno, Nevada. So we have an office in Reno, Nevada. I was out there last week. We had a really great luncheon with the local Boy Scout and community organizations. And then we had a, a party with the... Uh, just a cocktail party with the uh, clients and advisors uh, out in Reno. And just to watch the vibrancy of the Reno market, uh, real estate strong in Reno, people are coming over the California border to Reno and other places in Nevada along Lake Tahoe. So um, again, we're seeing the same thing. We do financial planning for executives in California and we're using combined tax rates of 53, 55%. I mean, so people wanna leave environments like that. So California is another state showing out migration as a result of that. So um, not every, every country or every state in the union is benefiting from it, just like in their structural problems in Illinois, structural problems in New York, California, just like there's structural problems in a lot of countries in Europe. So until those things are solved, we're going to continue to see those states do worse, people leave, other states with better policies will see people coming. It's no surprise. We just went through in Chicago a very difficult teacher mm -hmm. strike and everyone loves teachers. No, you know, How can you possibly say you don't love your teachers? Everyone remembers teachers from when they were younger, but they were pushing hard to get price increases and they got record wage increases in an environment where, where uh, the state is basically almost bankrupt. And mm -hmm. so it's pretty hard to see how that stuff should be happening. So it's a very difficult environment for certain states caused by themselves. They need to change their policies to make things better. Well, and you have a lot of these states that are, you know, have not great natural resources, you know, just great cities, historic cities like Chicago, you know, you're talking San Francisco, um, but, you know, it's a competition too. So you do have, you know, states that maybe aren't, don't have as recognizable cities, you know, on the whole, you know, you have the Indianas, I mean, there's Indianapolis and stuff, but as far as, you know, mega players in the world market, they don't really compete with Chicago. So you have these states that are looking to attract more and more and more people and grow their population and all that. So, 
um, you know, it, it's competition. They're going to lower their taxes. They're going to say, come on over here. Vote with your feet. Come over here. It's easy. Right. And, and so we see this play out on a statewide, you know, state by state stage or on a worldwide stage between continents. The, 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 the places to live that have strong economic uh, underpinnings uh, that incent growth instead of to overtax it and overburden it. That's where people want to be. That's where growth wants to be. And so until those states figure, the, figure this out or those continents figure it out, they're going to continue to lag, which is, which is unfortunate. So uh, here's hoping things change. Mm -hmm. uh, even our President Trump moved from New York City uh, today, was announced to Palm Beach, Florida. So apparently he's going he's gonna to domicile in Mar-a-Lago. I guess they have lower taxes in Florida, don't they? Right? Yep. So is that any surprise? Compared anyway. to New York. <laughs> uh, anyway, so here, here's hoping that the uh, high-tax states figure it out. Uh, and I think, Chris, that's all we have for today, huh? Yep. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. We've carried on long enough for today. We'll be back in a couple weeks. Thanks for listening to the Four Star Podcast, and we'll be back in a few weeks.